Turn up to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And we'll be, uh, we'll be in there in the last week. We, uh, we looked over what Mary's response was to what Jesus was about to do. And she basically just said, just do it. Whatever he tells you to do, just do it. No matter what it is, just do it. It wasn't, there wasn't, you know, um, you know, fine print after that, you know, if it's convenient for me or if it's this or this. No, it was just, it just said, just do it. Whatever Jesus asks you to do, just do it. And uh, how many of you found that when you just go ahead and do it and stop, you know, because you're not going to win an argument with the Lord. You're not going to change his mind. You're not going to do any of those. So you're fighting a losing battle if you're going to sit there and try, you know, and make a deal with them or anything like that or, you know, kind of like one of those things. But like I said, if you have your Bibles, we're in uh, John chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 13. Tim, if you could play that for me. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name, when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Amen. 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 Heavenly Father, we ask that you would, uh, that you would bless your word, that, Lord, our hearts and our, our ears would be open to receive what your word says. Not what our preconceived notions are, but what it actually says in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go back to verse 13. And it says, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. One of the things I want to point out is that Jesus four times actually goes to, uh, to the Passover feast in his public ministry. He probably went to it before he was before his public ministry started, but at least we know, I mean, because he's, he's, he's Jewish, so... He would, have, he would have went to the lows, but four times during his public ministry does he go to um, the Passover feast. This is the first time that we see, and his last would be the night before his crucifixion, when he, holds, uh, when he has that, which is the Last Supper. He has the Last Supper as a, as a Passover feast. And we need to, to look at this also because you look at that verse, and some people will say, oh, that's great, wonderful. He's going to a Passover feast. He's going to have some food. But we need what, what is the underlying thing in, in this is that he is keeping the Old Testament law, which was written about in Exodus 12, uh, verses 6, uh, 6 through 14, Numbers 28, uh, verses 16 through 25, and Deuteronomy uh, chapter 16, 1 through 8, and verse 16. And the reason why I want to point this out is because he's keeping the law. 
He's doing what the law says. He's, he's keeping us. I'm not saying that you have to have a Passover feast in your house. All right? I'm not talking about the feast, but he is keeping the law. The reason why I bring this out is because there's, there's false teachers out there. One, namely, is Stephen, uh, Stephen Furtick. Stephen Furtick is a false teacher. There's a lot of things that he will say that are, are good, but there's a little bit of stuff that he slips in, and you go, oh, that's, mm, that's wonderful. It's not found in the Bible. It's like, mm, that sounds, oh, that's wonderful. He has one of the things that he actually says, and he actually says that Jesus broke the law to save us. That is blasphemous. That is heretical. Jesus did not break the law to save us. He kept the law. He actually, this is a direct quote. It says, God broke the law for love. And everybody's like, amen, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. No, he did not break the law for love. He never did. What he uses is he tries to plays upon, he, he plays upon people's heartstrings. What he's, the, the analogy that he uses, the, the story that he, that he says is, he says, what if you're at home and all of a sudden one of your children falls off the monkey bars and it's 30 feet high in the air, and this is an exaggeration, and he even says this is an exaggeration, 30 feet, it falls off the monkey bar and busts their head wide open. And he says, when you get in that car and you see that sign that says speed limit, you don't care about the numbers. You don't care what the law says. You're going to break the law because of love. And he uses this whole thing of, oh, that's what, exactly what God did. No, he did not. God did not break his own law. God did not break. Why would he break the law? He came to fulfill the law, not to break the law. He is love. God is love. Everything that he did, this is the avenue that he took. But the thing is, is that everybody will you know, hear that part, oh, God broke the law for love. And the, thing, the only thing that brings into people's mind is, it's okay if I break the law too because I'm doing it out of love. We have this false view of what love actually is. It's actually for the betterment of the other person. Instead of what's, good, you know, what's best for me. The problem with this in here and what he's talking to the Pharisees, the problem with the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes wasn't keeping the law. That's where people have this thing, and they're like, oh, well, they're just too religious. They were keeping the law. That's not the problem. The problem isn't the fact that they were breaking the law. They were keeping the law. They were. The problem was is that they were staying to the letter of the law and not to the spirit of the law. There's a difference between the two. You know, you know that teachers can have a list of rules on the, on the wall. And the teacher is doing it out of the spirit of love, you know, out of the spirit of the law, because they don't want to see kids or children hurt. They don't want to see their kids get hurt, right? Kids will keep to it because they don't want the ramifications of what the teacher can do. Right? And see, that's the difference in the whole thing is, is that, yes, they were like the kids. They were keeping to, okay, God says not to commit adultery, so I'm going to find every... Kids can find loopholes better than lawyers can. They will say, well, you didn't say this. You, said, you just said this, and you say this, and this is the problem. They were trying to find the loopholes around it. The whole loophole, uh, the spirit of the law says, I'm not going to do it because I love God, and he has my best interest in mind, so I'm not going to do it because I love him, and I want to please him, and I don't want to mess up my life, basically, because I know God knows better than I do. But the letter of the law would sit there and say, well, I'm just not, I'm not going to talk when the teacher is talking. 
But all of a sudden, the teacher stops talking for, you know, 30 seconds or something like that, and they're, they're just blabbering. Well, you said only when you're talking. That's the problem, you know, that they have. They are missing the entire point. It's a heart issue that they have. And if, and if they would have just loved God's purpose in the fact of putting those laws in, into place, and, and they love Jesus, who is the living word, the law would not have been grievous towards them. They looked at it as being this big burden. How many times has, when you were growing up and your parents told you to not do something, you're like, parents just don't want me to have fun. I can't do anything around here. Parents are so mean. And the parent has, and you know now probably as, as a parent or a, a grandparent or any kind of relative, you know that you put those in place because you have the, the child's best interest in mind. 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Jesus is keeping the law. Why? Because he has our best interest in mind. He wants to show us that it's possible. My question, I guess, would be, is do we follow Jesus because someone told us, you better believe in Jesus or you'll burn in hell? Or do you believe in Jesus because... You say, I love Jesus because I know that he's going to protect me because of his word and he knows what's best for me. Is that the reason why you do what you do? Do you do it because you're afraid you're going to die and burn and go to hell? Because if you don't, or do you say, God, I love you so much. I don't want to ever, I don't want to ever hurt you. I, I, I know that you, you're going to protect me and that you're going to keep me if I, just, if I just do what you ask me to do. How many times, I don't know how many times I sat there with my daughter and saying, if you would just listen the first time, you wouldn't be in this situation. How many times does God have to tell us that? If you were to listen to me just the first time, it wouldn't be how it is. And here's my question for those that want to say that Jesus broke the law. Why would Jesus break the law, essentially, his word? This is his word, right? This is his law? He is the word. He is the living word. Why would he break himself? We saw in the beginning was the word, is the word. Why would Jesus break the law when that's him? He essentially would say that I'm not good enough. That's what you would say. Like if I'm breaking the law, you're saying that his word is not good enough. You're saying, Jesus is saying, I am not good enough. I have to break my own word. And he's no longer keeping his promise, right? So why would, we, why would he do that? His commandments aren't grievous. If we realize the purpose for them, then we would, we would know and it would not be a problem for us to do it because we love God and he loves us and we want to do everything possible to just please him, right? You know that if you have any, uh, any, uh, any child, that as soon as they start listening to what you've been trying to teach them, it's not only a joy to you as a parent or as a relative, but it's also a joy to the child because you no longer have to get on to them about doing it. It's a joy on both sides because they finally realize that you're trying to protect them. You're trying to, to do what's best for them. Verses 14 through 16 says this. And found in the temple those that sold oxen, sheep, and, uh, sheep and doves, and the change, uh, changers of money sitting, and when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the, uh, the changers 
money over th- and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things from here. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. This is Jesus not acting very Jesus-like. You know that? Most people have this image of Jesus being this lovey-dovey guy, not doing, uh, almost like, you know, honestly, they have Jesus more like, you know, like, kind of like he's a wuss or a wimp or a pansy. That he's just, oh, here you go. You can do whatever you want to. I just love you no matter what. This is Jesus acting not Jesus-like. Actually, no, this is Jesus acting Jesus-like. People have this idea that this is not Jesus, you know, that this is just an isolated uh, incident. Actually, it happens twice. This happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and at the end of his ministry. Did you guys realize that, that he cleansed the temple twice? He does it now, and he actually does it right before his crucifixion. About a week or so before his crucifixion, he cleanses the temple yet again. It says, my house shall be called the house of prayer. And not be, be a den of thieves. Adam Clark said this. It says, The vindication of God's house from profanity was the first and the last care of our Lord. And it is probable he began and finished his public ministry by this significant act. We know that, God, uh, that he does this twice. And you say, well, he only did one. No, he did it twice. The other time it happens in Matthew chapter 21, towards the end of the book. And obviously it says right before his crucifixion. Just so you know, the whole house of merchandise, all that kind of stuff, it has nothing to do with going to an event. If a pastor gets up in front of the church and says, hey, we got this event coming up, and it costs this much, that is not making this house a house of merchandise. All right? I've heard some say, well, you can't sell anything, you can't do anything in church. You're missing the point of what he's actually talking about here. This has all to do with obedience. It says, it's to do with obedience. These sacrifices were supposed to be out of a grateful obedience, and these sacrifices cost them nothing. Because sheep, oxen, and doves, those things that are, that are in there are supposed to be for animal sacrifices so they can atone or make forgiveness for their sin. They cost them nothing. You say, well, yeah, they did. They cost them money. They cost them nothing. Anybody knows that if you buy, like, say, you know, we, we have a dog, all right? That dog costs something. It costs money-wise. But that's not the reason why you bought it. You'd be like, oh, I love this dog this much. That's why I'm going to pay this much money for it. Oh, well, I don't love this dog that much because it's this one because it only costs me this much. You love the dog because you, you invest in the dog. You, 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 know, the dog. you play with the dog. You do all kinds of stuff with the dog. You play fetch. You feed them. You take care of them, right? There's an investment there. So what... What do I mean that these sacrifices cost them nothing? These sacrifices, they were not their best. They were not their best. They didn't raise the sheep or the oxen from birth. They didn't name them. They didn't care for them every single day. They didn't do any of that. If it cost them something, they would have went... For one thing, they wouldn't have been buying them at the temple gates. They would have brought the animal with tears in their eyes, knowing that they would say, one day, I'm going to bring you to the Lord as a sacrifice because of the sin that I committed. Can you imagine raising an animal knowing that you had to have it killed because of something that you did? 
And you sit there and say, oh, I would never do that for my puppy and everything else. I mean, that's just, you know, Pastor, you're talking about sheep and oxen. It doesn't matter. If you're a farmer or you know somebody's a farmer, a lot of times they will name their animals, especially if you have children. I share, I'm going to share this one story, and this was a kind of laughed, which is not a, a laughing matter for the one that was involved in it. But I have a cousin, I have several cousins up that live in Minnesota, and they're all farmers up there. And one summer I went up there, I went up there for a few weeks, and I was helping them out on the farm. And this one had a, they have a chicken farm. So they were out there and said, hey, it's time to slaughter the chickens. I said, okay. They, they called me city slicker because I was from a city. So they said, you're going to come and help us. And they helped, you know, I had to go out there and bale hay and do all that kind of stuff. But they said, hey, we're going to go out there and kill, uh, slaughter some chickens. And so they started going. And I figured out at, a, you know, at about the age of 10 why they, where we get the saying, running like a chicken with your head cut off. If you've ever seen a chicken run with his head cut off, then you kind of understand that saying. But anyway, so they would sit there and they'd chop the heads off. You know, they had like, a, you know, they had this, you know, piece of a block of wood with a couple of nails on it. Put the chicken's heads in there and they'd chop the head off and toss them. Chickens run around with no head. And so you go through. You gotta then you gotta dip them in warm water so that way you can get all the feathers off there, get all everything off. Some of you're nodding your head because you've probably done this a few times. And so you go like this. It smells wonderful. If you've ever had, you know, smell wet feathers, it's just a wonderful smell. And uh, you do that and everything else. Well, my one cousin, this is, this is my second cousin, she had a pet goose. She loved this goose. It was a little gosling at the time, a little, just a little, you know, tiny little goose. She loved this goose. Her dad, my first cousin, decides that he's going to play a joke on her and goes over and, gra- and grabs the little, you know, goose, puts its head on the chopping block and goes like this, and she about just, I mean, she just burst into tears. Cry, Daddy, no, Daddy, please don't. Don't do it. Don't do it. And we're all just kind of laughing. He goes, oh, I'm not going to do that. You know, the, the, the goose's eyes are like about the size of saucers and everything else. You know, seeing this axe come towards his head. He's like, I'm not going to do it. He says, I was just messing with you. But think about the ones that actually truly had something invested in these sacrifices. It meant something to them. The ones that are selling these things, they're going, here, here's your sacrifice so you can get, you get rid of that little sin thing that you got in your life so that way you're, you're good for another year. It didn't mean anything to them. That's why God's word says obedience is better than sacrifice because he's all, he knows that people will go out and buy something. People will try and, and, and spend all kinds of money in, in trying to get right with the Lord. Here's the thing. We don't sell sheep or oxen or doves in God's house, Right? But how many times do we come into this place, or how many times do we, even at home, make a deal with God? That's why I entitled this sermon, Deal or No Deal. It's, we'll make deals with God. God, I'll do this if you do, uh, do this. Hey, God, I'll, I'll give you my whole life if you do this. God's not into making deals. He doesn't negotiate. We're not in a position to negotiate. God sets the terms and conditions. You know, you know that big laundry list of things that you get you know, with Apple or Google that tells you, hey, these are our terms and conditions, and you click OK, or I, you, you click I agree. That means you're agreeing to their terms and conditions by clicking that little button, even though that you didn't read the 600-page terms and conditions that they have. God's word sets conditions, and there's no, well, God, if you do this, 
We'll go with Apple, we'll go with Google, we'll go with whatever software that's out there as long as we get what we want and we'll click I agree, not even reading what it says. God's word says you either agree or disagree. There's no, uh, there's no if, ands, or buts about it. You, you follow what God says, right? It says to do it. Like Mary said uh, last week, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Just go ahead and do it. Here's the thing. We know that God's commands are not grievous. We just read that in 1 John 5, 3. John chapter 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, keep my commandments. How plain and simple is that? God sets the terms and conditions. Proverbs eight seventeen says, I love them. This is God. I love them that love me. And those that seek me early shall find me. How do you love God? Love his commandments. God says, I love you. I love those that love me. How do you love them? You love him. You, you do what he asks you to do. You love him because he loves you. Remember, even while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Who loved us first? He did. We didn't love him first. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, And you shall seek me and find me when you shall see, uh, search for me with all of your heart. It's a heart issue that we have. It's this heart problem. We, don't, we, want, we want everything else in our life. And we want Jesus, you know, we want to just kind of tag him along. Kind of put him in a compartment saying, hey, it's a Sunday morning. It's Jesus time. So here, Jesus, come out of your little box and you're ready to go. Jesus, it says, I don't think it says with part of your heart. Did it? It says, search for me with what? All of your heart. Our obedience and our sacrifice, when we come into this house of God, is you. God wants you. He doesn't want your deals. He doesn't want your plea bargains. He doesn't want any of that. He wants you. Plain and simple, he wants us. When you worship through, uh, when you worship, through worship music, offering, and the sermon, or your life, your worship is you. No matter what you say, your worship is you. We have people that, you know, that will put money in the offering and say, I'm good for another week. I've heard people say it. I lived in a family that said it. We did it growing up. We could put a little 20 in there, kind of, hey, we did our duty. There you go. That's all we needed to do. Just give Jesus a 20 and he's, he's satisfied. We must ask before we enter worship with the Lord, which is every single day. When we wake up, even, even right when we wake up, say, Lord, how can I bless you today? Not how, hey, Lord, bless me that, you, that I woke up with another day. I, I had that attitude for the longest time. Now I wake up and say, thank you, Lord, for another day. You've blessed me with another day. Thank you for yesterday. I'm thankful for everything that you did yesterday. But God, thank you that I'm even able to breathe and see you today, to even see this day because of you. How can I, sh- and the other, uh, another question, how can I show others you through the way that I act, talk, and behave today? Lord, how, Lord, you must increase and I must decrease. Didn't uh, John the Baptist say that? And we talked about him a few weeks ago. Lord, you must increase and I must decrease. How can we bless him? How can we say, God, I want to show you to everybody around me. God, I want to, I want to, the way that I walk, talk, I want everything to be different than everybody else because I want to show you to everybody around me. 
I want to show you to everybody. I want to tell people about you. I want to, I want to do everything possible. I want to bless your name. Why? Because you've done so much. Even while I was in my sin, walling around, blasphemy in your name, cursing you, you still wanted to know me. You still wanted me. Amen? The way, we, the way you worship is how much you value your relationship with him. The way you worship is how much you value that relationship with God. And I'm not saying that you have to scream and shout and, and whatever. I mean, if you want to give the Lord a shout of praise, that's fine with me. But I'm just saying that what we need to do is really think about what his word is telling us to do, what it says, and then, and then go and do what he says. We need, to, we need to really ponder what we're saying. I mean, do we, do we get up there in the songs that we just sang this morning? Do we just sing them because it gives us goosebumps? Or do we sing them because we really, truly mean them, saying, God, you are the way maker. God, you are a miracle worker. God, you really do provide a way. Do we really think about what we're saying or we just say it just because we think it's a good thing? You know, oh, I, I worship the Lord. I sang a song. I'm sorry. But if there's nothing behind it, then it means nothing. I mean, think about it. We have Valentine's coming up. And guys, let's face it. Your wives will know whether or not what you're giving them actually means something to you because you're giving it to them. Right? Here, honey. Here's some flowers and some chocolates. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love you. How many of you are going to go, oh, you love me so much. I just feel it. I think, honestly, what they're going to do is probably take those flowers and smack you with them and say, you know, come back when you mean it. But if your husband comes up to you, ladies, he comes up to you, and maybe he has like a, just a single flower and says, hey, you know what, I, I'm sorry. And, you know, we're not able to afford that much, but you know, I love you so much for everything that you do around, your, uh, around this house, everything that you do for the kids, everything that you do for, for me, everything you do. I love you, and I don't need you know, one day out of the year you know, uh, to, to say how I feel about you. I love you. I love you. And I do everything. All the ladies are like, oh. Why? Because it's the intention of your heart. And I'm thinking of my wife when I say that, so it's very easy for me to, to say that. Why? Because it's the emotion behind it. It's the fact of that you actually truly mean what you're saying. God's the same way. If we have nothing, if we're just singing the words, saying the, you know, the phrases, even quoting scripture, but there's nothing behind it, we don't have, there's no passion or anything else behind it, that it means nothing to God. If it hasn't changed, if it doesn't mean anything to us, it doesn't mean anything to God. But if we say, God, thank you so much for what you've done for me, for how you, how even when I wasn't even wanting you, you said I'm going to provide a way anyways. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Verses 17 through 19. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of, of your house has eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and 
and said unto him, What sign do you show us, showing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise, uh, raise it up. Zeal for his house, or zeal, that word zeal, is just a, an intense passion towards something. The, the fact that it's an extraordinary concern for the temple of God. It says, zeal for my house has consumed me. Consum- uh, that it has uh, zeal, for my, uh, zeal for my house has eaten me up. It's an intense passion, and intense, uh, it's an extraordinary concern for the things of God in the temple of God. It's, it's that there should be a purity in our worship when we come in, and, and that God would approve of, of what we do. Here's a question that you know, most people will get right because they know the answer. But is this, is this place, this building, is, that the temp- is this the temple of God? Is this the temple of God? No. It's you. It's you. God has always... He, do you have an extraordinary concern for what the temple of... For this temple of God and for yourself? Do you have an extraordinary concern of what's happening in, your, in, in this temple of God? Do you have a, a concern and intense passion of what comes in to this temple of God? Do you have that passion for it? And some of us can sit there and think, well, he's talking about food now. No, I'm, I'm saying, what do you put into your body besides food? Yes, food is a big thing. What do you put in there? Are you just putting junk in there all the time? People always wonder, like, why do I feel horrible? Why do I, whatever? Well, what you put in is what you get out. Food-wise, spiritual-wise, everything. I'm sorry, if you keep on eating McDonald's hamburgers after a while and everything else, eventually. It's not good for you. I'll just tell you that right now. But what do you put in to your temple? What music do you listen to? What TV shows do you watch? What ideas? What different philosophies? What different things are you allowing just free reign and free access into your life, into this body? We have this, this idea that we can just listen or watch or do whatever we want to and let it enter our lives, and it's not going to affect us. There's times where there are things that, that I don't want somebody else to say about me in order for it to affect my life. I have, I have family members. I have one family member you know, in particular, and it saddens me. I think I've shared this story before, but this person, because of the fact that they would stutter and stammer over their words, they were constantly told by their classmates that they were stupid and that they were dumb. They allowed it to enter their life, and to this day, they think that they're one of the, one of the dumbest Stupid per- uh, people that they uh, the, uh, out there that they are the the most stupid if that's person that that is out there because of a speech impediment. It has nothing to do. How many of you know that stuttering, stammering, or anything else having a speech impediment has nothing to do with your intelligence? Thank you for saying amen because I'm one of those ones. That you you know you'll notice after a while. Sometimes I 
I get tongue-tied. But this person, to this day, believes because they stutter and they stammer that they're stupid. I'm telling you, this is actually one of the smartest family members that I, that I have. Because the stuff that this person comes up with, I mean, is just extraordinary. I mean, different things that, they, you know, they just go, oh, this does this, this, this. I mean, it, for me, a person that, you know, doesn't necessarily think mechanically or anything like that along those lines and, and whatever, but they'll sit there and say, if this does this, this does this, then this, 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 and they'll just go down the line and they can figure it all out. And they go about it and I say, man, you're smart. And they're like, no, I'm just stupid. They still think that they're stupid even though that they're not. What do you allow into your life, music, TV-wise, different ideas or whatever, to dictate? Just because somebody says something about you doesn't mean that, you actually, that it's actually true. I can go into a whole, a whole rant right now about evolution and stuff like that and say you weren't created from a monkey, I can tell you that. But we have this whole idea because everybody keeps on telling us that you know, we evolved from monkeys and apes and everything else, that we obviously evolved from monkey and ape. No, you didn't. That's a whole other series for a whole other time. What you put in or you allow in will come out. Whether it's good from God's word or it's bad from the world. What you allow in will come out. And here's the thing. Do you think that Jesus is a little passionate about this? Remember, we talked about that this is not, this is the true Jesus, the one that gets passionate about things and actually, he actually has a whip and he begins to flip over, you know, the tables and begins to let go of the animals and everything else. This is the, the Jesus that most people don't see because most people think that Jesus is this, like I said, this, this wussy guy, this little wimp that goes around, but he, he makes a whip and he just starts going through. Why? Because he's passionate. Why? He's passionate about his temple. He created you, your temple. He created you with his body. He's passionate. He cares about what you bring in and what you allow in. That's the whole point of this entire story. It's not the fact that you know, he was mad because they were selling you know, animals and sheep and everything else. No, he was mad because of their disobedience, because their heart is not in the right place, that they don't care about the sacrifices. They're just doing whatever they need to do to, to make it through another year. He's, he cares about your heart. Why you do something? You know, why do you do what you do? That's what he's, he's looking at. He's very passionate about who and what we allow in our, into our lives. Who or what we allow into our lives. You say, well, I can watch this. Out. You know, this doesn't have any, any purpose over me. You know, I, I don't care. I mean, it's, it's fine. Eventually, you keep allowing that in your life. It's going to you're going to begin to take those philosophies on, those ideas. Verses 20, uh, 20 through 22. Then said the Jews, For, uh, 40 and 6 years was this temple in building, and will you build it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said, that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Obviously, you know, like I said, it says Jesus wasn't speaking of his physical body, or, this, or, or sorry, he was speaking of his physical body. He wasn't speaking about a physical building. He wasn't speaking about the, the temple that was behind him. But he was talking about his, his body, his very life. 
that they could do whatever they wanted to this body, but he knew that he was going to raise from the dead in three days. That he resurrected. We also need to realize that we can spend our entire life building things that don't really matter. Like building up our savings or building buildings or, or building up our kids or because you know, we want to be in their lives. And you say, well, those are not bad things. Building up savings and, you know, and building a house or whatever, building up our kids, going out to you know, sporting events or anything. Well, that's not a bad thing. Well, hear me out. If the Lord doesn't build it, it will crumble. You need to build your life upon Jesus Christ because any other thing, as the song goes, every other thing is sinking sand. It's sinking sand. You can, you can build your, your, up your savings. You can build a house. You can do all these things. You can go to every single one of your, your children's events. But if it's not built upon Christ, it's going to crumble. There are some people that believe that they can, they can do whatever they want to do. That they, you know, I, I, I have to you know, miss, you know, I have to miss my time with, you know, with Jesus because I got to go do this or I got to do this. And we have a million excuses. How long would your relationship last if you constantly made excuses for why you weren't at home? And it's interesting to say because in verse 22 it says that he had said these, uh, uh, this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. It wasn't, it said that they, they didn't remember this, or they didn't actually, basically they didn't believe this until he had risen from the dead. Think about that. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered. They didn't believe what he was saying right here. They remembered it. That he had said this unto them, and they, uh, they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So it wasn't until Jesus died, rose from the dead, all of a sudden they go, that's what he meant. So at this point, they're not even, they didn't, they may be along the, you know, along the same lines as the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes going, it took 40, 40 and 6 years, or 46 years for them to build this church, uh, you know, build this temple, and he's going to come back up in three days? So to me, it shows that there's a little bit of doubt there that they have. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Catch that. Many believed, they didn't believe what he was saying. But it says many believed when they saw the miracles which he did. We can be like the Pharisees and Sadducees and everything else and go, oh, I see that miracle over there. Just remember that in the last days, the Bible says that there are going to be many false teachers, that there are going to be those that are going to be doing miracles and all these kind of different things to try and do what? Get your focus off of Christ, off of Jesus. And right there, what does it say? It says they believed in him, in his name. Why? Not because... What, what he actually told them, but just because of miracles. When they saw the miracles that he did. It's important to know this because later on, a lot of those people that were following him because of, because of this, turned their backs on him. 
and said, you're preaching a little bit too hard. And that's a hard saying that, you know, I don't think I can do it. And they turn their back on Jesus. Because what, where is their foundation? It's not upon God's word, about what he said. It's, about, uh, it's, it's based upon miracles that they saw. Don't let miracles sidetrack you from knowing Jesus. I see a generation right now that wants to be used of God, but they're more interested in the supernatural as far as being able to perform miracles and healings and all that than they are about knowing Jesus. And there's that verse that says, Many will say to, uh, unto me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do the... And what does he say? Depart from me, for I never knew you. I'm not saying that healing, miracles, any of that stuff is bad or horrible. I say that those signs are going to follow those that believe because that's what the scripture says. But what's more important than that is the miracle of the fact that you know God and he knows you. That is amazing. That's extraordinary that God brought us salvation. They may have thought that him to be the Messiah, but they didn't trust on him for, for salvation. They only believed because they saw the miracles. 24 and 25. But Jesus uh, did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any, uh, any should testify of men, for he knew what was in man. Jesus did not commit himself unto them. What does that mean? It means he did not put his trust or his confidence in them. He did not rely upon them. He did not leave them, he did not leave them to, to dictate what was going to happen in his own life. Neither should we. We shouldn't let other people dictate what happens in our own life. Because I'm sorry, when you get up to heaven, you're not, you're not going to be able to say, well, it's not my fault that I didn't have any time. It's so-and-so's fault. Or, I'm sorry, Jesus, um, but it's not my fault because you don't know how I was raised. It has nothing to do. Jesus is the one that our faith and our trust and our relationship needs to be based upon. People will sit there and, 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 and roll their eyes and do all these kinds of things and, and say, I don't care. And they're just fickle about it. Like, I don't care. I don't care what, what happens. But how many times do they put their faith and their trust in a human than they do in God who, is, who will never break a promise? And some of us in this room have a false view of who God is. We have this, we have this, this view, this mindset. I watched this movie this last weekend, and at the end of it, I said, never, I'm never watching that movie again. And the only reason why I completed to watch it was because of the fact, uh, you know, what they were trying to convey was how God is and what we should do in it. And that movie is The Avengers. I watched the movie, uh, The Avengers, and the whole basis of this one, this was uh, Avengers Endgame, so it was like the culmination of everything. The false view that they give in there is of Thanos, that Thanos is God, that, he's this, that no matter what happens, his will has to be done. At, no matter what happens, at whoever's expense, it doesn't matter. It's my will, my way, or the highway kind of mentality. And that we humans, which are the Avengers, need to stop him because he's not doing what's right. He doesn't know what he's doing. 
And their whole thing is trying to get revenge against this false god. And at the end, you know, because it's always got to have a happy ending. I'm going to ruin it for you if you haven't seen it. They ended up taking out Thanos, and they all live, and they're like, hey, great, wonderful day. That's what our thought is about everything else. I don't have to do anything because it's already been predetermined. I can just sit there and do whatever I want to do, and it doesn't matter because God's already determined it from, you know, uh, you know, foundations past. We have this weird mindset that God has dictated every little thing in our life. Like God plans out your sin beforehand, and you go, I, I can't help it. I just got to do it because God, God decreed it. He didn't decree for you to sin. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God decreed or God is making you sin. The God, the God chose your life and said, you know what, I think I just want to give them a hard time because you know what, I just don't really like them. You have this mindset that no matter what happens, that it's going to happen anyways, I can just do whatever I want. I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do because it doesn't really matter. God's already predestined me to hell, so I might as well go. And we have this mindset, we go on there and we just go and say, you know, God doesn't really care about me. He's this jerk that's up there, you know, trying to burn me like an ant. That was my mindset. My mindset was that God doesn't care about me. If he even does exist, he doesn't care. He's never talked to me. He's never said anything to me. He doesn't care about me. All he is is like that, you know, that kid up there with a magnifying glass trying to burn me like a little ant if he does exist. But he doesn't care about me at all. That was my mindset. You know what radically changes it? When all of a sudden God, uh, God calls you by name because he does know you, he does care about you, he has created you. The thing is, is that God does not want you to sin. Why? Why would God want you to sin when that brings disconnection and hurt and pain into your life? When he created you in his own image, and then he, he wants you, he desires you, he created you to have a purpose. And the thing is, is that it is to worship him. He doesn't want you to be in pain and suffering and hurt. He doesn't want your life destroyed by sin, destroyed by other people. That's why he sent Jesus Christ in the flesh. Why? To save you from that. To deliver you out of your own sin. Here's the, here's the reality that you need to realize is that every single person in here wants to, be, uh, wants to gratify, has, has a gratification that they, that, that they have. That's human nature. You know that? There's desires that are to be gratified, right? Those desires aren't wrong. The only time that they're wrong is when you use them in uh, unlawful ways, the way that God has not predetermined. Like, when God says, I want you to uh, go out there and eat food, that's a desire that he gave you, a desire to be gratified, right? So you could go out and you eat food. Now, it's a matter of how you determine what you're going to do with that food. Are you going to eat too much? Are you going to eat the stuff that's unhealthy? Are you going to eat the stuff that's not? Or the fact that God gave us a desire. He gave us a desire for our spouse, he gave us sexual desire, right? It's okay to say yes. I've had this conversation with, uh, with teenagers for the past nine and a half you know, years or so, you know, when I was a youth pastor. I said a three-letter word that no, no person in church wants to hear, but yet God created. I'm going to say it. God designed sex, okay? Okay. 
you can go out there and say, my pastor said the, you know, the three-letter word that starts with a, you know, S and ends with X. Um, he, desire, uh, he designed that. You know that? He, desired, he designed that whole thing. He created that whole, pro, you know, the whole thing. He desired for that uh, desire to be gratified. It's our job to either gratify it in lawful ways, which he has set forth in his word, or do it in unlawful ways in which we think, oh, you know, this has to be right because this is how I feel. What does the Bible say about that? The Bible says that God created man and woman in his own image and, you know, go increase and multiply. That tells me right there, marriage is traditional. Man and woman, that's it. Every other way is unlawful. There's a desire that we all have, and it's God-given desires. It's just a matter of which way we want to use them. Do we want to use them the way that God intended or the way that we wanted them intended? It's the same thing. It's a heart issue. What do you want to do with God, what God wants for you? Some, some of you in this place this morning, in fact, I had every head bowed and every eye closed, that you think you're nothing. There's some of you in here that think you're nothing, that you're nothing you know, more than just, you know, a piece of trash. But I'm here to tell you that that is not how God views you. God doesn't view you as a piece of trash. God created you. He designed you. God, the word says that he created you in his image and likeness. God has the best for you. Will your friends and family like that? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Here's the thing. You, think, you may think that your family has your best intentions in mind, but the thing is, as soon as you give your life to Christ, then you'll see how much they actually really do truly care about you. Because if they truly cared about you, they would say, you know what? Go serve Jesus because he has your best intentions in mind. He created you, he designed you, everything. God does not want you to think that you're nothing. You must be something because he died for you.